Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. Welcome back to Long Story Short. So we originally recorded this episode before the collapse of FTX and the so-called Lehman moment for cryptocurrencies. And that's why we invited Professor Cam Harvey back to the podcast to give his thoughts on the latest events. You'll hear this part first before Peter and Cam dive into their full episode about DeFi and the future of finance. So with respect to FTX, is this the industry Lehman moment? Well, there's so many differences uh, between Lehman and FTX. So Lehman was an investment bank and it had uh, an extremely leveraged position, more than 30 times its capital. And it took bets on very risky mortgages. When the housing market uh, turned south, those mortgages basically became worth less uh, than their liabilities. And um, FTX is a completely different situation. So. FTX is a situation where you've got an exchange where the principals took the customer money and allocated it or uh, commingled it with a hedge fund. And on top of that, it looks like the hedge fund was already insolvent. So in regulated jurisdictions, this is straight up fraud. So, uh, So this is like clearly uh, in, in terms of what the information I've seen, a fraudulent situation, whereas, uh, whereas Lehman, there was never any charges of fraud. But there's similarity also. And uh, one similarity is kind of obvious, that as soon as people thought that there was trouble at Lehman, there was a rush to get assets out of Lehman a so-called bank run. And the same thing happened with uh, FTX, that you want to be the first out. It's a classic diamond dibbic uh, bank run. And the other similarity is the potential contagion. So, so Lehman effectively led to the government bailing out all large banks. And we don't have a mechanism like that in uh, the crypto space, but I think that there are probably some others that um, are at risk and there's more shoes to fall. But there's one thing that is really important, and that is that this, what happened to FTX is not DeFi. So FTX is a centralized company. It's an offshore company, unregulated company. And it is uh, basically, um, in the business of, of trading, and, and you need to trust them, so with your capital. So this is a completely different than decentralized finance. In decentralized finance, you don't need to trust anybody uh, in the middle. So, uh, so in decentralized finance, you're trading with um, an algorithm, a decentralized exchange. And the algorithm is completely transparent. So you see the liquidity. It's like an instantaneous audit. Um, you send an asset to the, to the uh, liquidity pool and the algorithm, you get another asset back. right? And it, it's instantaneous uh, execution and settlement. 
So there's no situation where the liquidity in the algorithm is lent out to some hedge fund. So there, and, and this is pretty important. When you trade with somebody like FTX, you delegate your private keys effectively to them. So if something goes wrong, you're a creditor and you're in line in a bankruptcy. In decentralized finance, you don't delegate your private keys to anybody. You're the one holding the keys and you can do these transactions. So for me, this FTX episode really highlights the difference between centralized exchange versus decentralized exchange. And I also want to emphasize that um, these exchanges like FTX are offshore for a reason. Uh, they're outside the US regulatory uh, jurisdiction. I do think there, are, there is a role for centralized exchange, but, um, but I think that we've learned uh, the hard way, I guess, a lesson that uh, to go to um, a completely unregulated offshore exchange with no transparency, uh, ex post, obviously, is a bad idea. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's actually worse than controlling your own assets under your own key. Basically, institutional investors wanted to rely on exchanges, but if the exchanges are offshore and unregulated, and potentially frauds like this one was, it leaves institutional investors in a really difficult position. They have to look at exchanges, wonder if they're capitalized, wonder if they have sufficient capital to meet you know, whatever client demands there are, and, and whether they're even set up for this kind of stress. Do you think in institutional investors have any options? Do they have to rely on what's out there already? Well, I think uh, like a big winner here uh, is a centralized exchange uh, that's, that is fully regulated and based in the US, uh, Coinbase. Uh, it was one of the first exchanges. Uh, it's embraced uh, regulation and it doesn't have uh, like an offshore version. So Binance and FTX have US versions of their offshore uh, operations, uh, not Coinbase. So, so I think that you can get the model right and give investors some uh, degree of uh, comfort. Um, but obviously, again, many people have learned uh, the hard way and they were wanting to trade stuff that just is not available for trading uh, in the US given the current regulatory environment. So, so I think that that's another issue here given the current regulatory environment, the lack of clarity as to some of these cryptocurrencies uh, should be classified as a security, maybe some of them classified as a commodity. Given the uncertainty, uh, you just naturally see uh, offshore exchanges uh, arise. And again, with no regulation, uh, it just seems like a really bad idea to delegate um, the ownership uh, of your cryptocurrency to to these entities. Yeah, you've definitely been making that point, I think, that a regulated environment, whether exchanges or otherwise, is of benefit to everyone. And over-regulating crypto pushes it offshore where there's potentially no regulation. So you've definitely been right. And I think FTX is a good indication of what happens when we allow something like a centralized exchange to go offshore and be unregulated. But it brings up a few other thoughts. You know, Binance has announced the idea of a recovery fund, which 
to me is reminiscent of the super sieves that were around during the global financial crisis, trying to buy you know residential mortgages in 2007, 2008. And we know how it turned out and we know why the banks were doing it because they were desperate for capital. So am I supposed to be suspicious of things like this recovery funds? And I guess maybe just to sum up the episode, you know, what does it mean for DeFi here in terms of everything that's happened? You know, are investors going to have to learn how to operate without centralized exchanges? You know, or are institutional investors just never going to make the jump to, to DeFi anymore, given what's happening? What's the right path going forward? So a recovery fund is great until it runs out of money. And uh, again, remember, Binance is an offshore entity um, that is unregulated and uh, very opaque. So I think a better solution is to have uh, some sort of cryptographic proof of solvency. So if you decide to trade with a centralized offshore exchange, you can actually see what their balance sheet uh, actually looks like in real time. So in decentralized finance, that is routine. So you see everything. And if you do uh, actually go and trust a centralized exchange, you should have the same transparency. So I would rather know uh, what's on the books um, in real time than to have some vague uh, capital recovery uh, fund. I guess one last thing, the typical reaction for investors is people start talking about the end of crypto, the end of DeFi. You know, does FTX permanently damage the DeFi universe? What do you think? So I think that institutional investors have many choices. And, and one choice that's eliminated is to deal with an unregulated offshore exchange. So institutional investors uh, I think really have two credible choices. Uh, one is a fully regulated uh, U.S. exchange. And uh, two is to use uh, the tools of decentralized finance. It's actually a moment where a lot of people learn the difference between companies like FTX and decentralized protocols where you can do trading like Uniswap. So, so again, FTX is not a DeFi problem. FTX is not DeFi. FTX is a centralized exchange that operates outside of regulatory jurisdictions um, in some offshore location uh, in the Bahamas. So, so it is different. And uh, in, in DeFi, again, there's, there's no leverage. Uh, there's, there's complete transparency. And... And you don't need to delegate uh, the ownership of anything. So I think that, uh, to the contrary, I think that what happened to FDX uh, really makes the case that, well, there's an alternative where we get rid of the middle person and all of the problems related to the middle person and efficiently uh, transact uh, between peers. That's DeFi. FTX, there's a middle person. So you don't trust any parties in DeFi, but for FTX, you had to trust them and exposed. That was a catastrophic mistake. I'm pleased to be joined again by Cam Harvey, professor of finance at Duke University and author of DeFi and the Future of Finance. Cam, welcome back. It's only been a few weeks, but welcome back. Well, thank you for having me on again. 
So I'd like to kick off with understanding the genesis for your work in decentralized finance. It's not exactly a space I would expect a lot of you know professors and researchers to be in. So one, what got you in? And two, what's changed since you started researching? So the story of me getting into the space is kind of interesting. Uh, for seven years, I didn't teach at Duke University because... I was editor of the Journal of Finance, and that's a full-time job. And when I went back to teach my course on asset management and international finance, I decided not to use the same old materials that were dated seven years ago, but to renovate the course and renew it. And when I got to the section on Forex, I decided, well, if I'm going to do basic stuff in foreign exchange... One, I'd add something new. There's this idea of cryptocurrency. And this is in 2013. So this is like almost 10 years ago. And I read the original Satoshi Nakamoto paper. The first time I read it, I said, well, you know, that's kind of novel. The second time I read it, I realized, oh, this is a big idea. So, so the genesis for me was basically this paper is a foundational paper and a, a potentially very disruptive idea. And I put a two-hour lecture together on this topic and I delivered it and took a lot of work to put together because I had to learn uh, a lot of computer science stuff that uh, it's been a long time <laughs> since I took these courses. So it was a big investment, and I did the lecture, and you know how it goes where right on the hour, you don't go late because people just get up and leave after that hour, and I finished, and and people just sitting around like and not standing up, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, I ended the lecture too early. What a mistake. I look at the clock. No, I'm exactly on time. People just sitting there. And then I'm thinking, oh, well, I really bombed this lecture if they're having this reaction. And no, then they came up to the front and many students said that it was a transformational lecture for them and that there shouldn't be a lecture. It should be a full course. And that's the genesis of me getting into this space where I turned this into a course and uh Originally, we didn't have room for it in the business school, so the university was very interested, and I had a course offering that was really unique because I had about a quarter of the students were business students, a quarter computer scientists, a quarter engineers, and a quarter law students, and it made for just a, a really dynamic experience, and indeed, I think that was the first blockchain-oriented course that was taught. And um, it really did get the attention of Duke University when a story uh, featured the course uh, in the Financial Times uh, as kind of an innovative course. So in terms of academics, what are we supposed to do? Our research is kind of being creative, plotting the course for the future. And our teaching, we want to give our students a glimpse of what could be in the future, and that will help their choices. So I'm very comfortable uh, being, I guess now, a specialist in this space and guiding my students through a very complex space. 
And it's not just students, of course. Um, many people on the outside are seeking advice uh, in this space as to how to deal with that. So I, I'm increasingly comfortable with that. And I see that this is a very significant disruption. I guess since you've started, I mean, from the original paper from Nakamura to now, there's probably been a lot of change. What do you think is the cause for the big uptake with investors and, and the attention from policymakers? Like, where are we headed? So the original paper, and this is the Bitcoin paper in 2008, it basically is about a mechanism to do transactions. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer method so that I can send you some money or you can send me some money. And in the original course that I taught focused on that technology. Uh, what I teach today is completely different in that I focus exclusively on decentralized finance. And, and let me tell you the difference between let's say the Bitcoin technology and uh, Ethereum, which is the blockchain that most of decentralized finance uh, deals with. So in Ethereum, you can do everything that you can do in Bitcoin in terms of uh, I can send you money, you can send me money, but there's another aspect that's really important. And that is that we can also send money to an algorithm that exists on the Ethereum blockchain. And it's called a smart contract. So I can send to the algorithm or I can send to you. And this opens up so many possibilities. Uh, a simple example is decentralized exchange. So there is a liquidity pool where people have uh, deposited, let's say asset A and asset B into this algorithm and then I can interact with the algorithm uh, for exchange. So I can send asset A to the algorithm and it will send me asset B. And it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. The algorithm is completely transparent. So I can see the code. I can see the liquidity. I can uh, kind of algorithmically figure out what the slippage is going to be. And, and this is decentralized exchange. So it effectively enables a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, sort of trading via an algorithm. And this is, in my opinion, the key innovation that broadened this space very substantially. So now we can think about other things like decentralized exchange. It's not just money transfer. It's borrowing, lending, savings. Uh, all of the applications in terms of what we do in banking, what we do in insurance. And uh, the latest innovation is Web3. And Web3 is not possible without decentralized finance. So it, it, it basically is, the reason we go from Web2 to Web3 is decentralized finance. All right, so we're gonna, build up to that i think there's a lot to a lot of wood to chop and i think what i want to start with is is a bit of innovation in banking because when i think of banking i don't think of innovation i think of dentists still pulling wisdom teeth with pliers and and banks charging fees after fees and processes that take two three four five days that feel like they could be instant so are banks going to become blockbuster video or are they going to be microsoft and thrive in in this new DeFi world you're you're building so the world of finance changes 
So this is not a renovation. This is a rebuild from the bottom up. But I'm not of the view of some DeFi evangelists that everything is going to be de decentralized. So you think about it, uh, 10 years ago, everything was centralized. And, and today we've got some progress on decentralization. Will we go to 100%? Probably not. Uh, and I see a continuum where some things are done more efficiently via a centralized institution, and some things are done more efficiently uh, in a decentralized way. So for example, money transfer is more efficiently done in a decentralized way. Like today, just think about it. It takes two to five days to, to transfer funds. In this technology, it's a matter of seconds to do it. And it's highly secure in decentralized finance for, for transfer. But there are other things that banks do, uh, such as uh, the credit function, that's not well suited for decentralized finance. So in decentralized finance, uh, all loans are fully or over collateralized. So there are certain things that banks can do that are not as well suited uh, in decentralized finance. So in the future, I, I see that there will likely be a shakeout in terms of uh, the number of banks uh, that exist. They will still remain, but their business model will be different and they will be smaller, in my opinion. So this technology does not eliminate them. It does change their business model. And indeed, I think the banks realize this and are making investments that uh, kind of give them a longer runway. So what, you, what you're saying to me a bit is something like SWIFT might be a relic, but at the same time, every day I read an article about Bitcoin theft or crypto theft. I mean, how fast are people really going to embrace that, you know, trillions a day of, of moving money around using DeFi? There's many issues here. So um, it is true that given that this technology is a fairly nascent technology, that there's been a lot of exploits. And for example, famously, some uh, exchanges have been uh, compromised and their funds uh, taken. But let me emphasize that those exchanges are centralized exchanges. It's different than what I'm talking about with a decentralized exchange, where you've got an open source algorithm, you can see the code, and you can see uh, the liquidity uh, that's there. And many of these exchanges had very poor uh, security uh, you know, precautions, and people literally went in and uh, found a file with all of the private keys, took the private keys, and spent the money. So that really isn't a decentralized finance problem. There are other issues in decentralized finance, uh, other challenges. But to me, we need to weigh the potential benefits and the potential costs. I see a lot of benefits. And, and of course, uh, there will be bumps on the road. And we will see more of them. But again, it's not surprising with a technological innovation of this scale, you expect things like this. 
One of the things that I've thought, especially as we live through a bit of a crisis in the UK with respect to LDI investing and, and margin calls is effectively improving the settlement process and the settlement speed of transactions should be something that improves financial stability. Do you think that's a reasonable application here? Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because in decentralized finance, there there is no like phone call uh, for you know request for margin, extra margin, and maybe somebody doesn't answer the call or says I'll get back to you tomorrow, and you kind of stretch it out, and when you're basically under collateralized. So in decentralized finance, there are incented actors in the space that if they see if something's under collateralized, they have the ability to close it out before it turns into a problem. You're not only that, you're settling a transaction fast, right? So instead of saying, I'll wait six, not six weeks till I get my money or one week or three days, the archaic way, I have my money, you know, now. Exactly. So given this speed, uh, you avoid the problem. So again, think of this uh, situation where you've gone below your maintenance margin. You're still over collateralized, but you've gone below the maintenance margin. And then you spin out uh, extra time. And then by the time it is settled in traditional finance, there could be like serious under collateralization and, and losses. So in the decentralized finance system, you're correct that the execution of the trade and the settlement are identical. So you, you drop below the maintenance margin, you're closed. Okay, so, uh, and, and that's it. So in a way that speed, in my opinion, reduces the uh, systemic risk in the financial system. It's what it should be. So again, many people don't realize that to settle a stock trade, a simple stock trade, it is two days of time. And this was the reason that the very successful fintech company, Robinhood, almost went bankrupt. Even though they're successful, that, that two days uh, in, in, in terms of the difference between the execution and the settlement almost put them out of business. In a system where we had, instead of T plus two, like T zero in decentralized finance, you don't have these problems. So there are many positive uh, ideas here. Um, it's, it's the way it should be. We should not have to wait uh, two days to settle a stock. We should not have to wait like two to five days. You mentioned the SWIFT system. And we are so reliant upon SWIFT. And a reasonable question for a company that is so reliable, you know, reliant on, on SWIFT is, well, what if SWIFT goes down? What if SWIFT is attacked? And I've written on this, that uh, there's various different attack vectors for this messaging uh, system. What, what is the plan B? And right now, there's no plan B. And, and it's unfortunate because decentralized finance is a credible plan B. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and in fact, I think you presented to the Treasury, the, the Financial Stability Oversight Commission on regulation. And what I think is fascinating about it is that 
actually both sides want regulation. And maybe you could expand upon that a bit. So the regulation problem is is really challenging uh, because our current laws are just not suited for this space. Obviously, Securities Act of 1933 was written before we had computers, let alone digital uh, currency. So the challenges are multifaceted. Uh, number one, the space is very complex. And once the regulator is up to speed, they realize that their knowledge is depreciating so quickly that they have to constantly invest in understanding this technology. And the regulator also realizes that they have to have a balanced approach. So if you do nothing, then you induce the Wild West and people are taken advantage of. And indeed, that is the genesis of the 1933 Securities Act, where so many lost their fortunes in the late 1920s um, due to basically unregulated, uh, fraudulent uh, securities offerings. So you don't want the Wild West, but on the other side, if you're too harsh in the regulations, then what happens? Uh, you drive innovations offshore. So instead of setting up in the UK or the US, people set up in uh, some island in the Caribbean. And I don't think any country wants their best ideas driven offshore. So the balancing act is really important to get it right. It's further complicated by the fact that this is a global technology. So it's not just existing in the US, it's existing all over the world. And we know it's very difficult to coordinate that. So in terms of your specific question, there are uh, many protocols that are looking for regulatory guidance because having no guidance, having no regulations whatsoever uh, induces uncertainty. And what we're getting is a brain drain that is effectively motivated by, well, we don't know what the regulations are going to be, but we do know there will be regulations. So let's locate offshore. So we need to resolve that uncertainty somehow and have regulations that recognize that this is a very innovative area and there's potentially a lot of benefits in terms of the economy to having this technology, but also recognizing that some people will take advantage of others. So the balanced approach is really uh, important. Right now we're effectively in limbo, waiting for some regulations. And I think that's right. The innovation of innovation in the US has been such a driver of growth, right? In US financial markets, you see valuations of tech companies far in excess of you know, kind of old tech. And so not embracing that innovation and leaving it in limbo definitely seems like a mistake to me. And you certainly don't want anyone else to win, you know, the opportunity to open up decentralized finance to, you know, everything we do in the US. So again, we need to think about the big picture here and the problems that are being solved um, potentially with decentralized uh, finance. So things like inefficiency, and we talked about the lag and settlement or the ridiculous 300 basis points you need to pay on every credit card swipe. 
Uh, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's also inclusion. And I talked in my book about um, the number of people that are underbanked. So there's 1.7 billion unbanked people in the world, but there's probably many more. It's not well known what the number is that are underbanked. So, so think of the following dynamic that you're an entrepreneur, you're starting out, you've got a really good idea. Uh, you go to your bank. So you're banked uh, and pitch the idea. You need financing for the idea. And it's like a 20 plus uh, return uh, on investment sort of scenario. The banker likes the idea, but says, look, this is a great idea, but I prefer to deal with a hundred, uh, with like one large customer rather than a hundred small customers like you. But given that you're a customer of the bank, uh, we will increase the credit limit on your credit card and you can pull the money out that way to finance your idea. And we all know what the interest rate is on credit card uh, borrowing, and that eliminates the innovation. And these are precisely the types of innovations that we need to rekindle economic growth in, uh, in especially developed countries where the U.S. seems stuck at 2% real growth. The U.K. and Europe, maybe 1%. Japan, zero. Uh, we need like 5 6 7% real growth. And one way to increase growth, and this is very much related to my academic research, is to reduce these frictions. So to finance that project and 100 other projects like it, or thousands, and that can really um, jumpstart. Uh, these economies. We need growth. Uh, and these frictions that exist in the centralized financial system are holding us back. So again, when you think about regulation, you need to think in the big picture about what this could offer the economy. And what it could offer, in my opinion, is very substantial. Yeah, I think the the underbanked is clearly a topic that that this helps. And I guess I would like to extend that a bit to talk about frontier markets. You know, when we see projects financed in Africa, South America, at best they're large-scale projects, they're almost always energy. Often they involve some people you probably don't want to be dealing with to get the project done. And I feel like this is the kind of technology that opens the door to financing lots of different projects, projects with more social good, and maybe even in a way that pensions can do real ESG, right? Real socially conscious investing. I don't know if your thoughts are extend that far. Yeah, no, definitely. So this, if you think about all of the possibilities uh, in decentralized finance, so think of the usual things that we've got, like stocks and bonds and mortgages, all of these are tokenized. And as soon as you tokenize, it's possible to have unprecedented uh, diversification. So think of somebody uh, like a retail investor that wants to add some mortgages to their portfolio. And it's not the usual thing you put in your portfolio, but let's say you want to do that. And let's say you've got $1,000. Well, that $1,000 could hold tens of millions of mortgages diversified all over the world because of this fractionalization. So. So on one level, this provides, again, this added efficiency, again, the 
uh, the settlement and the execution are simultaneous, but let's kind of go beyond the uh, obvious assets like stocks and bonds and mortgages and things like that. And think about tokenizing all of these projects around the world. And it could be infrastructure projects, they could be, as you said, like true uh, ESG projects. And in the world um, that I envision in the future, this will be available not just to the largest institutional investors, but to everybody. So right now we've got this, um, this gap between the institutional investors and the high net worth investors where they've got opportunities that other investors just don't have. And I think that this technology will democratize uh, the opportunities for investors, but also be very efficient in enabling the financing of projects all over the world with broad participation. And again, I'm not talking about, oh, well, there's this infrastructure project in Kenya uh, that I'm going to take 50% of my portfolio and gamble on. Uh, no, this can be done in a very diversified way where a very small fraction of your portfolio is devoted to any single uh, project. But you get this global diversification and the opportunity set increases. Uh, and, and many of the assets that will be available in the future are just not available today. So this space also creates uh, new assets. So I guess... We both see something in, in the future for everyone, um, but maybe talking a bit about where we are now and, and where a lot of the crypto skepticism, and, and I'll admit I'm a bit of a crypto skeptic, in one sense that Bitcoin isn't necessarily an amazing asset for a lot of institutional investors to hold. Some people have compared it to gold. Like, How do you view the portfolio utility of Bitcoin, is it an asset class? Is it just a, you know, something that ran away from itself and has gotten a bit overvalued? What does it look like to you? So Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency and it is uh, basically the most important in terms of market capitalization. But I think it's really important for investors to step back and look at this space in a holistic way. So in my paper with my colleagues at, uh, at MAN, which hopefully is linked uh, so people can read it, uh, we talk about the diversity of this space. And uh, we detail 20 different categories of crypto. And one of them is called uh, the so-called layer one currencies, which could be Bitcoin or Ethereum or others that have their own uh, blockchain. So for an investor thinking about a diversified portfolio, uh, it's hard to ignore the crypto space given the capitalization is around a trillion dollars. So it's hard to ignore. But if you want exposure to that space, Again, do the usual thing that we do um, 
routinely have a diversified approach. So to just think that you're getting exposure to this space thinking, oh, well, I'll get it only with Bitcoin. That's like saying I've got diversified exposure to the U.S. stock market because I own a single stock, Apple. No, that's not the way it should work. So what I recommend is to look at the entire space. There's many different ways to get exposure to this space. One way is to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, but there's many other possibilities. You can buy governance tokens that are linked to particular protocols. They're easily available. You could invest in platform tokens. Uh, there is just a long list. You can stake some money and earn a yield on it. Uh, again, the, this is a diverse space. And just to focus on Bitcoin or whatever Elon Musk is tweeting about Dogecoin, uh, that I think um, is too narrow. And we need to broaden the assets that you're looking at within the crypto space. So I have a a reasonable list of other things to hit on. So we're going to maybe make this a bit of a lightning round if we can. <laughs> so I don't know, 60 seconds a topic. So Circle Bank is trying to become a narrow bank at the Fed, the ability to deposit at the Fed. What does that mean for stable coins? Will all banks have stable coins? What do you think? So initially Circle wanted to become uh, a narrow bank. A narrow bank, just for the listeners, is a bank that uh, takes deposits but doesn't do any lending. So they just take all their deposits and, and park it with the Fed uh, in terms of excess reserves. So I don't think that would ever go through. The Fed wouldn't uh, approve that because effectively uh, Circle's USDC becomes a de facto uh, US um, kind of like a digital currency. So the CBDC. Uh, the central bank uh, digital currency. So I don't think that uh, the regulator would actually allow that. Uh, but instead, uh, Circle, I think, is you know really embracing uh, the, the regulator and, and looking to do the right thing. They're very open in terms of their collateral uh, and, and how it's reported. And... Uh, so I, so I don't think they're going that direction, but I do believe that there will be a regulation. And I think that that's probably a good thing uh, for Circle. Uh, the competitor stablecoin that's not based in the U.S. called Tether, and there's been legal action against Tether, I think is in a far weaker uh, position. And probably amongst the fiat collateralized uh, stablecoins, uh, Circle will do the best. And indeed, I remember in my course uh, having a speaker from Circle, and it was the week after they launched. And they were just so excited that they had $20 million uh, in terms of capitalization already right out of the box. Now it's a completely different story, and they've done really well. With with respect to Tether, I think there there's there's a lot of smoke, and I think that gets picked up by the press, and plenty of hedge funds are out there saying you're supposed to short it. Skipping into hedge funds that trade crypto, I mean, there are thousands of them. We've heard one hedge fund hired someone called Acid Freak, who's a hacker, to, to trade crypto. Are there too many hedge funds for 
I mean, the asset class is a trillion. It's smaller than the top five companies in the U.S. So this is important. Uh, number one, it's an early market. Um, so there are inefficiencies. And it makes sense to actually go in and, and trade this space. The hedge funds are there because they can make money. So in our paper, uh, The Investor's Guide to, to Crypto, um, we showed that really simple trend-following strategies are very profitable and far better than uh, buy and hold. So, so there's lots of opportunities. It's no surprise that hedge funds are there. And hedge funds play in the space of relatively illiquid assets all the time. And, and indeed, this space is, is relatively large compared to some of the other places where they find opportunities. So this is no surprise to me whatsoever. Uh, they will go in there and do what they usually do while they make money. They make the market uh, much more efficient. That's number one. Number two, you say it's $1 trillion. Yes, it is today. But what about the future? So there's a lot of innovation in this space, and we shouldn't judge this space by, well, it's only worth a trillion dollars today. Um, what we should be thinking about is, where is it going to be in five years? How about NFTs and tokens for private equity, private credit? Are they going to come? Is there going to be a liquidity premium if they come? Uh, so the tokenization's already begun. And I'm sure you saw that KKR uh, did a deal uh, where it was completely uh, tokenized. So this is a big idea. Um, and when we talk about private equity, we're talking about uh, companies that are not IPO'd and not traded on public uh, exchanges, that we will see a new channel for financing. So it used to be that you go uh, to the bank mainly for your financing. Maybe you've got some equity that's raised and it's super expensive to raise from venture uh, capitalists. But now that channel will become much more efficient where with tokenization, we'll be able to participate on a broad uh, fashion. And this is very helpful for early uh, companies. Um, indeed, I remember before Facebook went uh, public that my high net worth uh, friends were talking about the stock. They've been active in it for years and they were trading it basically but it wasn't available to people like me uh, and the average person. So I, I think that this is great, again, for additional diversification and also importantly, to reduce that friction and allow companies to have a different channel of less expensive uh, financing for their projects. How about stablecoin yields versus bank deposits? Are the banks finally going to pay us proper yield thanks to stablecoins? Yes. So this is interesting. And uh, one of the problems that we currently face is this kind of centralization and, and market power. So I talked about the problem of inefficiency. I talked about the problem of the lack of inclusion. Well, centralization is another problem. And what I mean here is that the large banks have considerable market power. And what this new space does is it injects competition. Indeed, it also injects competition to the central bank. 
and competition is a good thing. So yes, why is it that these rates are so low for savers? Why is it that borrowing rates are so high? It's market power. So anytime you inject some competition, that will make uh, the market more efficient. And again, the implications we need to look at for the economy as a whole are very important. And that is that this allows for uh, higher economic growth. Are the central banks going to lose control? So in a way, central banks have already lost control. And uh, I'll give you an example. <laughs> uh, this is a developing country, Venezuela. So it's got a reckless central bank and, and fiscal policy. Hyperinflation, 700%. If you're rich in Venezuela, you're effectively hedged because you have a bank account and U.S. dollars in Miami. But for the average person, you get hammered from the hyperinflation. But with this technology, the average person actually has a mobile phone. And the mobile phone serves as their bank. So they're unbanked. But their mobile phone has got some, let's say, USDC, the, the token that's linked to the U.S. dollar. So, so now they're hedged. And effectively, you, you can transact in this USDC. So you've disintermediated the central bank that's been uh, reckless. And it's not just Venezuela. It's the same thing in Turkey. When uh, their inflation began to spike, that people started to buy um, you know, tokens that are linked to the U.S. dollar that are very low risk. So the volatility of those cryptos is no more than the U.S. Uh, dollar. So, yes, I think that this provides some competition and alternative. Uh, do I think you know, the central banks or U.S. dollars going away? No, it's just going to be another mode of payment. So in the future, think about paying for something. Go to your grocery store, for example. We usually tap our phone or our or credit or debit card. But uh, in the future, you have a choice of what to pay in. So maybe you want to pay in U.S. dollars, and maybe that will be a CBDC, so issued by the Fed a digital token. Maybe it'll be a crypto token linked to the US dollar. Maybe it'll be a crypto token linked to the price of gold. Maybe it'll be a token linked to uh, the price of Apple stock or the price of oil. You choose. You've got all of these different assets on your phone and you can choose to pay with what you want. And whoever's receiving, they can also decide. Uh, maybe you want to pay for your groceries with your gold token. Maybe the grocer doesn't want gold, they want silver, and then just seamlessly there's a decentralized exchange that swaps the gold for silver and you're done. So in the future, um, it will be a different world in that there'll be uh, a variety of different ways to pay. So the concept of money really changes. So we've had a monopoly, a fiat monopoly on money. And that will be broken with this crypto revolution. But isn't the central bank just going to push back on that? I mean, if we think that the banking industry is slow and angry to embrace this, I mean, I don't, not that Jay Powell has any time to think about crypto right now, given what's happening in inflation. But you, do we really think the central bank is going to let that go? 
Well, there's an example where the central bank didn't let it go, and that's China. So they just banned crypto and, and the, for multiple reasons. So the main reason is that if you got money in China, you need to hedge and get it out of China. So the regulations are very strict. You can export maybe $50,000 a year. And people realize, well, what if I just buy crypto? So within China, I buy the crypto and the record of that crypto exists on a blockchain ledger uh, in thousands of different locations around the world. So there's no export whatsoever and I'm hedged. So the central bank and government moved against uh, crypto because it was threatening existentially uh, their currency. And then they will push for a central bank digital currency. And maybe this works in China, but I don't think it's gonna work in Europe, uh, UK or the US where the government sees every single transaction? Uh, I don't think so. Or the government can edit your wealth? Uh, I don't. I really don't think so. So it is possible that uh, the central bank or government could do things that are basically like China, like doing a ban, but that would be very, very costly. So indeed, in my testimony to the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council, I made this point that if you do something heavy-handed like that, then you eliminate a channel for growth. And an example I gave was Web3, that if you do something heavy-handed like banning a crypto, it takes the US or the UK or Europe completely out of this really innovative space. And it's, it's like not being present with uh, internet innovation in the 1990s. That would be a disaster for the future uh, growth of any country. So we need to be really careful about that. And I do think that the central bank, uh, it's inevitable that there will be a competition in terms of different ways to pay and uh, different concepts of money. And I think that they, I think it's too late. That's what I really think uh, for the US. The, the horse has left the barn. And now it's just a matter of managing. So I can hear every skeptic in the world in my ears right now saying, these are all really great things you've talked about, Cam. They all sound revolutionary. They sound amazing. Tesla promised me that I was going to have a self-driving car five years ago, self-driving taxis. And admittedly, Elon Musk has done some cool stuff with spaceships. Um, but the question is, when is that innovation going to be here? Some of it's here already, but when are we going to see what we'll call some of your blue sky ideas come to life tangibly? Yeah. So part of what I do is, as I said, right at the very beginning, to try to give a credible vision of the future. So what are the problems that exist today? And are there technologies that can solve these problems? And, and, and basically, I have a view. And obviously, there are certain aspects of this view that will evolve uh, through time. As for when this actually occurs, uh, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> Um, 
you can have the vision, but to have the actual timing, it's it's really difficult. Um, I have made the statement that in 20 years, I believe that we'll look back on fiat inflation as a historical curiosity. So what I mean by that is that given that people will have all of these other methods of paying and and kind of storing value, could be a token, as I mentioned, linked to gold or real estate, things like that, that it just won't be as important what the central bank uh, is actually doing in terms of printing money and things like that. So I believe that given the vector that we're on, that uh, we will see substantial disruption in at least the banking system in the next uh, five years. And then there are many different Web3 innovations that will have, in my opinion, a dramatic impact on the businesses that are very prominent uh, today. And think of decentralized file storage. Think of decentralized computing. Think of decentralized social media. Think of decentralized mobile communication, decentralized video and audio serving, decentralized ride sharing. So I don't need to name the companies associated with all of this stuff, but there um, are small companies today that are in each of those niches. And the implications are vast. So I talk to some institutional investors and sometimes they'll say, oh, well, I'm really skeptical. And we've talked to our investment committee and we've decided we're not going to have any exposure to crypto. And then I, I say, okay, well, I get that. But have you thought about the possibility that you don't really have zero exposure? You've got negative exposure? Because some of the very prominent names in your portfolio have a bullseye painted upon them in terms of this space. So I'm okay with you not having any exposure uh, directly in terms of dollar investment, but you need to think this through, what this technology could do, and you don't want to be in a position where you've got negative beta. Well, I think the one takeaway people are going to take from this podcast is the idea of an inflation-free world, given the environment we're in now, is going to make everyone happy. But for the second time that you've come on the podcast, you've managed to bring up a really fascinating topic that kind of ensures we'll be calling on you again to talk about Web3 in more detail because everyone was doing fine on this call until you said, hey, there's a bunch of companies with targets on their back. <laughs> so we'll invite you back again for the target list, maybe some target shooting. But thanks for coming on again. Thank you for inviting me.